When it comes to climate change, the discourse is often heated, but today's guest is the calm before, during, and after the storm. Author, speaker, and strategist Catherine Wilkinson is all about climate action, creative ways to save the earth. Join us for a conversation that delves into science, navigates through the vitriol surrounding climate change, and lands on messages of hope, positive stories of success happening now, and those planned for the future. Welcome to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us, Catherine. It's really a pleasure, Marshall. So, you know, know, we actually first met each other doing some work together on climate action here in the state of Georgia. But you're here today to talk about climate action, drawdown, a lot of other interesting things. But before we really dive into some of that, just tell us a little bit about your background and who you are. Sure, I'd love to. Um, well, I have to admit, I guess, right here at, at the top of the the hour, or, or less than an hour, that I am a hopeless interdisciplinarian. So I have an academic background that ranges from religious studies to environmental studies. I have worked in the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, in research, advocacy, strategy, thought leadership, but with a, a cross-cutting interest in climate action, how we understand it, amplify it, and really move towards a regenerative future. Yeah, so you you, you kind of cover a, a great deal of space, and I think that's appropriate for climate because climate is not necessarily a meteorological or climatological issue. It's a cross-cutting issue. Uh, so what, what, what attracted you into the sort of climate space? I, I agree with that. I think it may be the most cross-cutting issue we could possibly conceive of, uh, given that it touches every aspect of the planet and human and non-human life. I suppose in some ways I feel like it picked me rather than me picking it. I had a very formative experience uh, at the age of 16. I lived in the woods in western North Carolina for four months, and that's when I, I really became for lack of a better better word, a, a committed and convicted environmentalist um, to really uh, addressing the challenges of the living systems of this planet, which of course we are an integral part, we humans. And I also got really interested in that time in the stories that we tell about ourselves and our relationship to this earth that, that we call home and what that means for our sense of responsibility or not, uh, the kinds of action we take or not. And I suppose in many ways I've been asking those same kinds of questions now for the last almost two decades. Right. So, yeah, so you're really kind of, uh, kind of been in this space for some time and, uh, we appreciate you for it. You know, talking with Catherine Wilkinson, author, speaker, strategist on climate action, senior writer at Project Drawdown also. And we're going to dive into Drawdown, so we'll, we'll get there for the, the, the listeners that aren't familiar with it. You should be, so we'll get there. But I want to pivot to a book you wrote called Between God and Green. What's that book about and why did you write it? Well, it just seemed like such a great title. Someone had to write the book. <laughs> so you actually, did you have the title first? No, uh, the book actually had its origins in my doctoral research. Okay. Um, now, where'd you do your doctoral work? I did that at the University of Oxford, okay. um, where I was a, a Rhodes Scholar. Sure. Now, if that, for those that don't know what a Rhodes Scholar is, she's super smart and very talented. <laughs> That's one of the most heralded uh, honors within the academic field. So congratulations on that, first of all. Well, thank you. And thank you to 
to my undergraduate self who was very dedicated <laughs> and hardworking. <laughs> um, so I, I actually spent a year uh, working for a big environmental nonprofit, the Natural Resources Defense Council, right out of undergrad. And I was spending a lot of time in uh, rural Tennessee working on land use issues mm-hmm. on the Cumberland Plateau. And I was just struck by how much of the environmental movement speaks past so many audiences that it really ought to be engaging, people who care about place and care about land. And um, I was really interested in grappling with these questions of political will and public engagement. Were there other ways in uh, that we hadn't maybe been exploring thoroughly enough? And that same year, a group called the Evangelical Climate Initiative launched with a full-page ad in the New York Times that said, our commitment to Jesus Christ compels us to solve the global warming crisis. And I had studied religion in undergrad, uh, as well as environmental studies, and I thought, well, this is fascinating um, and runs counter to some of the kind of conventional wisdom um, about uh, that aspect of American culture and society. So um, I I used that time at Oxford to really dive in uh, to understand where had this evangelical climate movement come from um, and where might it be going? So that's the story that is is captured in the book. In the book, yeah. And and that's really an interesting thought because you and I both know when we talk about climate and climate change, there are these sort of a priori assumptions about who is – caring about climate change, who is in denial or skeptical of climate change. And so oftentimes certain faith-based groups aren't considered to be a group that cares about the topic. And I think that I think you're really kind of touching on a key issue here. So That's right. And there's really an incredible theological resources, actually, for thinking about climate change and our responsibility to tend and keep the garden or to care for the poor yeah. um, and most vulnerable. And um, yeah, it's it's wonderful to see leadership on climate coming from so many different places yeah. uh, around the world. Well, I think that leadership is required because you we, we know that the, the discourse around this topic is interesting and I want to go there. Just give me your sort of introductory thoughts on the climate change discourse in this country. Goodness me. Uh, <laughs> and we, we've got plenty of times because that, that, that's a loaded question in a lot of ways. It is. Um, well, you know, I think maybe the first thing to say is that uh, really incredible science doesn't always translate into really incredible communication. And I think a lot of the communication in the climate space has been well-intentioned, but often a bit misguided and certainly uninspired. I agree. Um, there's so much jargon. Uh, it can feel so uh, inaccessible and impenetrable to, to the average person. You can sort of think, well, if I'm not a climate scientist, I don't even know how to begin making my way yeah. through all of this content. And that's just the science of the problem statement, right? right? right. Then yeah. we start to think about the solutions. Um, and I think for a lot of folks, the the message that they have heard is sort of, it's bad, and it's going to get really bad, and basically we can change light bulbs. And right. that's, a, that's a disempowering place to be. You can end up feeling really afraid, um, pretty hopeless, pretty paralyzed, um, like you have very little sense of agency. And 
kind of, well, what else should I do besides cross my fingers that folks in the halls of power uh, and maybe some geniuses in Silicon Valley sort this thing out? Well, but let me let me pick up on one thing you said, though, because I, I agree. I think people think it's bad and they, they, they some want to know. But do there's a group of people or several groups of people that don't buy it at all. Absolutely. So, so I think there are sort of multiple layers. You, you have this sort of sort of communication and jargon aspect that uh, that is a challenge for some that frankly want to understand. But then you've got this other group of people that are dismissed. You know, the Yale group has done this Six America study and the sort of how America breaks out into these six groups. Then you have that group that just so how how it's do we have point. tailored messages for the different. Six Americas. So I was happy to see that the the latest report out of the Six Americas is that the dismissive is now under ten percent. Went down to nine percent. I saw it's yeah. it's low, and yeah. and the alarmed and the concerned are now the majority. Right. So I think we really are seeing seeing a shift. But you're absolutely right. Um, there are still plenty of folks in this country who don't quote unquote believe. Uh, that as if it's a belief system. That's also <laughs> one of the things that drives me crazy. Do you believe in climate change? No, my son believes in the tooth fairy. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's like that's the wrong verb. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you believe in the doctor? Right. I don't know. Do you believe that that ball is going <laughs> to fall off the table if it drops? Exactly, gravity. gravity. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's you know it's really such a shame. There has been a very uh, well-funded and very smart misinformation campaign uh, in, What's in the this root country. What's in, in your thoughts? Well, there are there are interests that have something to lose when we think about the kinds of action that will be required uh, to shift, particularly in the shift away from fossil fuels, and um, and 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 so I think there's been an effort to protect certain interests in the same way that we saw. For many, many years, the misinformation around tobacco, that tobacco didn't cause lung cancer. Well, we know that that is not true. Um, and unfortunately, there was a, a lot of energy and and money put into confusing people about that fact. Uh, so I hope that we're about maybe we're already at the turning point uh, similarly to tobacco on climate that um, we just you can't not quote unquote believe anymore. Yeah, and I agree. I think that 9% dismissive in the six Americas, what's interesting I find about the 9% dismissive is they're often the loudest though. They on are. social media or at, at the Thanksgiving dinner table or, <laughs> or wherever you are. So it, it gives you the sense that maybe there's more of that kind of perspective out there that, I mean, you know, frankly, after this podcast airs, um, I'll get tweets from people that say that what we're talking about is ridiculous and uh, it'll, you know, I'll get my share of uh, inter social media intera interaction, but it's, it's really the nine loud 9%. They are, they're loud. They've, they've got megaphones for yeah. sure. And they seem to have a lot of time on their hands to be <laughs> <laughs> dismissive. I hadn't thought about that. Um, you know, my, my feeling is, you know, we're already living in a climate changed world. We're already feeling the impacts and my goodness, We'd better hope there's something we can do about this. Right. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I want to circle back because, you know, to this, you were headed down this road that there are some people that certainly hear this notion that it's bad and they think that, oh, let me go buy a Prius or change a light bulb and I'm all good and just hope things, I hope my house doesn't flood or I don't get blown away by a Cat 6 hurricane. That doesn't exist, by the way. Um, but 
where I felt like you were going somewhere with that narrative a little bit. So continue in, in terms of where we are in terms of people sort of understanding at a big picture, but then there's this jargony world that they just don't kind of get into. Sure. Well, I think, you know, what we have seen by and large is kind of a repetition of the problem statement, right? At higher and higher volume and frequency, the doom and gloom, the threat and fear. And, and certainly there is doom and gloom to, to discuss. Um, but from sort of a basic psychological standpoint, we know that that just doesn't work very well. Um, it has the opposite of its intended effect, right? Which is people sort of want to plug their ears and close their eyes right. and, and head the other way. I was really interested actually recently listening to an interview with Joanna Macy, uh, who has been a longtime um, environmental voice and Buddhist scholar and Rilke translator. She's just this incredibly wise woman. Um, but she said that the the etymology, the root of the word apathy, is actually about avoiding suffering. So sometimes we think, oh, it's just that people don't know and they don't care. But I think oftentimes it's they don't know what to do with the knowing and the caring and that that can actually be a really hard place and even heartbreaking place to be when you've really got your eyes open. So I think the shift from just articulating the problem statement and a smattering of solutions to really more thoroughly detailing the landscape of solutions at hand and the footholds of action for any individual uh, and every institution on this planet, um, that gets exciting and that starts to take us into more of a sense of possibility. Um, And and from possibility, I think we, we start to be able to act. Welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we're talking with Catherine Wilkinson. She's an author, speaker, strategist on climate action and senior writer at Project Drawdown. And that's where I want to go next with this discussion. Project Drawdown. I'm familiar with Project Drawdown, and obviously you are. But give us the 101 to our Weather Geeks listeners on Project Drawdown. All right, Weather Geeks, this is exciting to to share with you all. I'm sure some of you already have a copy of the book Drawdown sitting on a bedside table or coffee table or a desk in your in your home or office. But yeah, let's start with defining what we mean by lowercase d drawdown, yes. which is which is the most important really. Um, in terms of climate change, drawdown refers to that point in time when the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere peaks and then begins to decline on a year-to-year basis. This is what we think of as, as the most uh, common-sense climate goal for humanity. We, ha- we're, we are headed the wrong way down, the, down a road towards a cliff. We don't want to go down it more slowly. We actually want to turn around and head back the other day, the other way. So drawdown is really about that threshold, heading back to the conditions that we know have been most conducive for life on this planet that have let human society develop in, in the way that it has. So if you want to get to drawdown, there are kind of two basic things you can do. And the first we focus on most of the time, which is 
try to stop sending greenhouse gases up. So this is what technically some of us call call mitigation. Is that right? Mitigation. So mitigation, it's it's a word I don't love. um, Okay, tell us why. Because, so I'm I'm going all word geek on you today. No, but listen, we can weather geek, word geek, we're geeking out here. So, yeah, the, the, the root of the word mitigation means to lessen an evil or a difficulty. Well, my gosh... Is that really, that's our highest aspiration, just, just to, to lessen, lessen an evil? Right. Like, oh, okay. Right. But yes, as essentially, it is, it, is, it is mitigation. It is about switching to uh, cleaner uh, energy sources. It's about energy efficiency, mm-hmm. protecting ecosystems, all that good stuff. There's another side of the equation which harnesses the incredible breakthrough technology of photosynthesis. Right. Yes. For 3.8 billion years, nature has been working on the best carbon capture technology in the world. So there are also um, a whole host of opportunities through uh, agriculture and ecosystem restoration and protection to actually bring carbon back home. The right. carbon that we have we've taken from uh, this planet and sent up into the atmosphere. You know, I feel sort of bad for carbon sometimes. Carbon becomes this like evil villain. <laughs> Uh, and it's, a, it's an essential <laughs> part of life on the planet. It really. is. It's a building block it, it of life. Yeah. And and so it's really a, a question of balance. Right. Um, what have we done with it and how do we bring that carbon cycle back into a more kind of life-giving right. place? Because we, as you just heard Catherine mention, we do have a carbon cycle. It's a part of a broader set of biogeochemical cycles in our Earth system. And carbon is in the ground, it's in the atmosphere, it's in the oceans, a lot of it in the ocean. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that a bit later. So it's not that carbon dioxide is inherently um, bad for us. In fact, the greenhouse effect, which is effectively what we call it, even though it technically doesn't operate like a greenhouse, uh, is the essential to life on this planet. Um, I have a good friend, Scott Denning, who's a professor at CSU, that says, the, the evidence that the greenhouse effect actually exists is that we survive night every night <laughs> because otherwise like it would be too cold. Yeah, so, we need that blanket yeah, in we, our atmosphere. Yeah, and so I, I love the way he puts that. But you're sort of saying that drawdown is sort of trying to bring us back into our home, harmonious balance in terms of CO2 That's right. That's that's right. So uh, the, the nonprofit that I work for, Project Drawdown, is is really focused on on two things. Uh, we're, we're kind of a living research and communication organization And we set out to answer the question, can we get there? Can we get to this point of drawdown? And what are the best tools in our toolbox? So uh, the book that we published, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, catalogs the 100 most substantive solutions uh, to get us to drawdown before mid-century. And... um, it's kind of a cheeky subtitle, you know. It sounds yeah. a bit sort of bravado, but really, no one had ever proposed yeah, a plan. I, I think it was a pretty bold plan. <laughs> I, I I don't think it's over the top. I actually think it is pretty bold. Good. Um, well, and and really, you know, we didn't make it up. Our our job really was to gather the collective wisdom of humanity. Um, Eighty of those solutions are technologies and practices that we already have. We're using, they're scaling, at least in some places. They're scientifically proven, and we have great data about them. Um, So 
really the book reflects back to humanity what we already know and in some cases what we're already doing. And then there are 20 solutions in the book that are what we call coming attractions. So they're more nascent and that's sort of the fun, forward-looking, maybe, what if. No, I mean, I'm familiar with the book, but for those that aren't, are the solution space more sort of broader, large-scale efforts or are there any solution spaces in Drawdown that really the book project Drawdown that individuals can sort of become engaged in? It's a great question. So it's a very comprehensive landscape. We look at uh, electricity, transport, buildings and cities, food, land use, materials. There's also a sector on women and girls. So you name it, if it is a... I want to stop right there <laughs> because I, I have a daughter who's in yes. Girl Scout. I'm very aware of some of these issues. And I, I, I heard some of this discussion. Talk a little bit about why there is a chapter on women and girls as it relates to Drawdown. I'd, I'd love to. Well, I should say that all of the solutions are relevant to women oh, and ab- girls. Absolutely. But there's a specific but there is a focus. And, and I think it'd be interesting for our viewer, listeners yes, to talk yes. about that. Um, but I don't want to undercut. We, we really, you know, we need women's leadership across the whole landscape of solutions. But it turns out that there are a few key areas that are actually focused on women's rights and gender equity that happen to have positive ripple effects for the planet. Hmm. So one of the things that that we know has an impact uh, is just how many feet are making their carbon footprints on this planet. And the United Nations does projections on possible population size. So uh, the difference between their medium projection for 2050 and their high projection is about a billion people. And whether we hit high or medium will have everything to do with closing the gap on uh, education for girls around the world through secondary school and access to family planning. These are kind of two sides of the same coin. What we know is that when women uh, have more years of education, they and their partners choose to have smaller families. And those families, uh, uh, those children have more resources invested in them. They're healthier. We've seen this, of course, play out in, in, in the U.S. Um, and if you want to manage the size and spacing of your family, you need some means to do that. So you need access to, uh, to contraception um, and, and voluntary high-quality health care. Right. So there's the connection. So it's really interesting. You know, as we started off our conversation, we talked about how the climate action and climate discussion is really multifaceted, multidisciplinary, and, and touches many areas perhaps even listeners may not have thought about as well. I think that's one of them. Indeed. Yeah. Actually, it, it turns out if you add up educating girls and family planning, uh, addressing gender e- equity is the number one solution to reach drawdown. Now, wow. Let's be clear, it's not the only solution. Absolutely. We, you know, I think everyone's hopeful that there's a silver bullet. And as you know so well, a whole system has created this challenge and we need a whole system, system to, to solve it. Absolutely. Yeah. But isn't it amazing that securing and advancing women's rights and opportunities turns out to be a climate solution. Right. And it's also just a no brainer, irrespective of the climate problem. Anyhow, as the father (laughs) of a daughter. Exactly. Uh, So uh, are there any sort of solutions within Drawdown that one might look at this from a big picture view and say, yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, that's just technically we can't do that. 
Are there anything provocative in there? So for for all of the 80 solutions that we already have in hand, um, the assumptions that we tried to make in our modeling uh was to assume, okay, let's let's take, for example, rooftop solar panels or bicycle infrastructure. Let's think about how much it could scale over 30 years, vigorously but plausibly, right? We, we wanted criticism of drawdown to be, you've been too conservative, not you've been too aspirational. Right. Um, that that was really important for us. So in in terms of the 80, I mean, there is a lot of work to be done. Don't don't let me understate that. Um, we really do need exponential action in in the next couple of decades, but it is doable. Right. Um, and and then the coming attractions are where you might say, mm, I don't know about that, right? <laughs> they're, we're likely, they're all scientifically valid. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have bothered to write about them. Um, but some of them are still very much uh, in research and development, stages, nascent. Sure. Um, so, so lots still to come on, on how they will end up really playing out. Which, which I want to bring, uh, actually, uh, I do want to bring this up now. We can, we'll pick it up uh, later as well. So there are some on the what I would say climate skeptical or climate sort of neutral side of the, the, the narrative that says, eh, you know, people are worrying about this too much, but we'll technology we'll develop technology to dig us out of this hole anyway. So let's not be too worried about it. Let's not get all alarmist about it. Now one could argue that very much what drawdown is about, a project drawdown is about using technological and innovative new solutions, renewable energy and other things to really get us out of this hole. But I get the sense that you don't take this we shouldn't be worried stance because technology is going to get us out of this. Gosh, again, I would say, uh, you know, I, I wish I could believe that. Wouldn't that be a, a nice thing to to go to sleep thinking at night? Um, we're just not seeing that uh, in practice. And we're going to need a whole bunch of different technologies uh, to help us. And we're going to need a whole bunch of things that are not newfangled. Uh, actually, a number of things in drawdown, particularly when you think about regenerative farming practices, for example. Some of these are things humans have been doing for centuries, even millennia. And it's really, in some cases, about returning to uh, our roots or practices that that we uh, long knew the value of. You know, think of something as simple as composting. Right. Uh, we understand compost, the science of it, better now. But humans have been up to that for a, a long, long time. Exactly. Right. We didn't have landfills, so. Right. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, again, I, I just sort of counsel against any logic that says there will be a silver bullet. I think that is uh, that is always a reason to have your antenna go up and maybe your alarm bells to, to go off, particularly when we look at carbon capture uh, technology. Um, there are huge questions still about how it will come to pass because it's energy intensive and the scale that's needed is enormous. And, um, yeah, it will, it will probably play a role. Um, but I don't think it's going to save our hide. <laughs> Welcome back to weather geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we are honored today to have Catherine Wilkinson, Dr. Catherine Wilkinson. Uh, she's the author, speaker, strategist on climate action and a senior writer at project drawdown. 
I want to pivot the discussion a bit now because you ended the last segment talking about there's no silver bullet, and I agree with that. But one of the big important things that came on the scene in the last several years was the Paris Agreement. And the United States is no longer a part of the Paris Agreement. Technically, technically we still are. But uh, due to policy decisions, uh, uh, the current president has um, moved us from that. What is your understanding of the Paris Agreement, why it's valuable, and why it's detrimental that the U.S. is not a part of it? Or is it? Oh, it's a hornet's nest, isn't it, Marshall? <laughs> well, and that's what we like to talk about on Weather Geeks. <laughs> we yes. like to get to the bottom of things. Yeah, so this is, I have many, many thoughts around this question. You know, I think the first thing I would say is, come on, America. <laughs> we, we need to be leading. You know, right now, um, basically the decision was made uh, by this White House to step onto the sidelines. And the rest of the world is still engaged in the game. Yeah. And I think, you know, even from just a geopolitical perspective, it is foolhardy not to be not to be at the table. We really have abdicated a leadership role. Um, And I personally believe that America is better than that. But what what about this, excuse me, other narrative that says it hurts our economy? It's bad for the U.S. Is that just talk? It is, I think, an, an outdated way of thinking. So if you flip the pages of Drawdown, you see the potential emissions impacts of these different solutions, but you also see the economics of the different solutions. Um, there is a huge upside economically to pursuing climate solutions. Now, look, there are industries that are going to be affected. Um, but I sort of like the analogy, you know, we, we don't sort of uh, wring our hands about, uh, about Blockbuster, you know, becoming a, a thing of the past and Netflix coming in. You know, th- this is the way that the world works. Sure. Things move, evolve. Now, we need to think about the impact on individual lives and communities and um, how we address issues of, of jobs and economic justice. Absolutely. Um, but there is there is a lot of opportunity for prosperity in the pursuit of climate solutions. And uh, I think we've got to start calling folks on this idea that it is economy versus the environment. No, 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 no. There is no economy without a functioning environment. Right. And um, and I, I, there's a, there are more and more people waking up to that reality. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. But that I, I, I threw that out there because we both know that that's a, a narrative that that drives decisions. It these does. Days. It does. And 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 it's a it's a really simple narrative. Yeah. Right. And I think people like the idea of of simple narratives. But better still, uh, we have opportunities to to move forward um, on multiple priorities um, towards a, a, a stronger economy, more resilient agriculture, less hunger, uh, better health, right? All of these different co-benefits are, are tied into the solutions to address the problem of greenhouse gases. Now, now, now let's get back to the Paris Agreement. So the 101, Paris Agreement 101 for the, the listeners. Because again, the Weather Geeks listeners are 
fairly informed, but some of them really may not understand what the Paris Agreement was up to or trying to do and why we're so concerned that we're not engaged. So just tell us about it from a 101 perspective for the listeners. So the, the Paris Agreement um, was was the world finally coming together. And finally, is a, let's <laughs> emphasize that because there's been a long effort. It's been a very long effort um, uh, to, to commit to shared goals in terms of climate action. So uh, keeping warming of the planet to two degrees Celsius with a strong aspiration to try to keep it to 1.5 yeah, degrees sure. Celsius. Now and we're talking Celsius. Let me, let me just make sure everyone understands that the international community deals in Celsius. So uh, do the conversion of 1.5 and two degrees. And it's a, it's even higher in terms of that number for those of us here in the U S that still are using Fahrenheit. It's a great point. And, and we're already just over one degree Celsius of warming uh, since the beginning of, of the industrial era. So we are well on our way to that one point. But it's just, but Catherine, it's just one degree. I mean, I'm, I'm being, I'm being a little silly. Of it's just one degree. And I, when I hear that, I mean, I was like, well, Dick Art is a good colleague and friend of mine at the NOAA. He tweeted the other day. He said, well, I'm hearing a lot of this is just one degree. And what he said is that, well, imagine if you bumped up your, or I think he was using it's just two or three degrees that we could ultimately see one. Imagine if you bumped up your thermostat to two or three degrees in the summertime uh, for the rest of uh, your life. <laughs> Talk to me about that. And I always say, imagine if your child ran a two or three degree fever permanently. Yes. Your body would know about that. That's a great, I think that's such a good analogy because the experience that we have of, well, it's 70 degrees outside. Now it's 73 degrees. That doesn't feel like very much. Right. But we know from our experiences of being sick and running a fever, that temperature shifts can actually have very big impacts on a system. Right. And it's not just about the average warming. It's about the kinds of extremes that we see and and the, the bigger shifts that that warming triggers. Gosh, if all we were talking about was the experience of, you know, every average temperature going up a degree, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But, but I think it, it gets back to this question you asked earlier, Marshall, about communication because targets for an international treaty do not a communication strategy make, (laughs) you know? And, and I think all of this two degrees, one and a half degrees, how many parts per million, you know, these are confusing to people. They, they don't mean very much. And, um, and I I think it's unfortunate that so much of the communication has focused on, on, on these, these numbers. How, how do we, how do we make the pair and your, from your perspective, how do you make something like the Paris agreement sort of accessible to sort of just garden variety average Americans? Well, of course, I'm biased about this, but I think the concept of drawdown is is a much more accessible aspiration. And and if we have any hope of sticking to the Paris Agreement targets, we've got to get to drawdown. I was with a, a big auditorium of eighth graders back in October in Jackson, Mississippi, which if you've never been really terrified, uh, eighth graders will do it to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. because the, the, As they say, eighth graders keep it real. Eighth graders keep it real. But we were looking at a graph of the fluctuations in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over the last uh, 400,000 years. And you see, of course, this sharp upward tick um, that uh, that we're now l- living within. Yeah, we're at, four, what, 409 parts per million, Four, 410. Yeah, I think the yeah. latest reading was 410, yeah. 411. Okay. Um, we're, we're in Terra Nova. The human species has never 
survived in these atmospheric conditions before. Right. And and what she means by that, because again, I can, I mean, I'm, I'm used to the skeptic arguments. Yeah, but the planet has seen CO2 values much higher than 410 parts. Per, of course they have, but you missed the point that perhaps that, um, Humans haven't lived in conditions where it's this high. Exactly, exactly. The the planet has a lot more tolerance than those living beings, uh, including us, who are doing life um, upon it. Right. Um, but I loved, you know, okay, guys, eighth graders, in all your wisdom, if this is the problem statement, you know, what do we want to do? And this one young man uh, said... Essentially, yeah, we want to turn around and go back the ah. other way. This is really intuitive, actually. Um, so I, I think I think that is is helpful uh, helpful for folks, um, and it's also something that we can measure at the level of action, right? So. Um, you know, we could know if the state of Georgia actually gets to the point of pulling more carbon down than we send up uh, in in greenhouse gases every year. That's that's something we could um, measure and know if we achieve it um, at the level where, where action really takes place. And I, I know there are some discussions going on in places like Georgia and other places. You and I have been involved with some of them and trying to work with uh, the private sector, NGOs, um, foundations like the Racy Anderson Foundation and others to try to address some of these issues. So there, one of the things I've often said is there's a lot of sort of foolishness foolishness going on in pulling out of the Paris Agreement and the narratives about climate. But I feel like on the positive side, there's a lot of discourse, more as much discourse about climate change now than I've seen in the last decade. It's exciting, actually. Yeah. And I think it's been sort of the silver lining. Yeah, I, I've I, tried I, and I've tried to find it. <laughs> um, no, I, I think that more and more individuals, more and more institutions are taking ownership of climate action. And um, and we're hearing discussion of bolder goals and bolder aspirations, recognizing that it's not enough to get to carbon neutral. We actually have to get to drawdown. Right. Um, in fact, one of the largest companies in the world is considering taking on drawdown as a corporate goal. Well, that's a game changer. That really we weren't be. hearing anything like that five years that ago. That is correct. That is, so, that is correct. Um, and still, you know, to kind of come back to the Paris Agreement question, we've set this target. Countries have agreed to it, but the policies and the pledges that are currently in place are insufficient. They are not going to get us to two degrees. Uh, I think they get us more to a three degree kind of world, which is not a world I want to live in. I'll, I'll tell you that much. And action is even less sufficient than than existing policies and pledges. So we've got a long way to go. Um, but it's actually, I think, at uh, at a it's not in international negotiations that this is going to get sorted out. It's really going to be where rubber hits the road and action takes place in cities and companies and communities. Um, that's where that's where reversing global warming really has to happen. So and I'm hearing her say it's local. Now, it's interesting because, you know, earlier today we actually uh, did a podcast with the FEMA administrator, Brock Long, and it was about emergency management and responding to disasters. But he was also talking about that things are local. And I, I hear you saying that as it relates to these activities. 
one of the things I want to kind of relate to that is if someone's listening, because you, I get this question a lot. I'm sure you get it. You know, okay, I, I'm, I'm sold. I realize we need to do something here. What what can I do? I mean, beyond changing my light bulbs, because you, you mentioned that's one of the things that people think about. So what would you, how do you respond to that when people ask you that? Yeah, sometimes it's sort of a desperate, like, what, what should I what? do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you right. know? Um, and, you know, I think one thing to say is be a little mistrustful of anyone who gives you a recipe for action. Um, what I hope people will do with Drawdown, whether it's looking through our website or flipping the pages of the book, is to start to get what, a... What is the website, by the way? Go oh, ahead. the website is uh, www.drawdown.org. And uh, the website is great. It has lots of great imagery and content. Um, but you start to get a sense when you l look at Drawdown of just how much good work there is to be done, yes. just how many opportunities to act there really are. And there's um, uh, Frederick Beekner is a theologian who has this great sort of a recipe or equation for vocation. And he talks about where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. Well, the deep hunger part on climate is clear. But where do you see deep gladness in the opportunities for climate action? Um, is there something in Drawdown that really stokes a fire in the belly uh, for you? Um, there's some some really low hanging fruit uh, in terms of top solutions. So reducing food waste is the number three solution. Adopting what we ended up calling a plant rich diet is the number four solution. These are things anyone can do immediately, immediately. and at no cost, right. which is great. Um, the other thing I always say is don't forget that this is not a problem we can solve just from individual action. We really need to think about acting as we and shifting systems. So for example, if you're super passionate about bicycles, absolutely ride your bike, commute by bike whenever you can, but maybe also get involved in expanding bike lanes in exactly. the city or uh, supporting bicycle culture through something like Streets Alive. Take, so take your local sort of passion or even your local footprint, scale it up. Exactly. Um, use individual action as a way to get excited, to get grounded in your values, to have a sense of integrity, um, and then spin out from there. And and I also say try to do it with joy and with love. You know, uh, I hate to think about, especially in my younger years when I was more of a maybe a finger-wagging environmentalist, of this is bad and don't do that. And um Come on, nobody likes to be to be spoken to in that way or sort of um, guilted or shamed in that way. Um, the great thing is that so many of these solutions are they have lots of upside. Um, I've been a vegetarian now for almost 20 years and um, and I love it and I feel very healthy and I eat fantastic food. Um, you know, can you help? show people that, uh, that, that that's a, that's a possibility. Sure. Sure. Yeah. My daughter has actually recently become a pescatarian. I believe I'm nice. saying that right. And so she's sort of transitioning there as well. Um, last question for you. Why is there so much sort of anger about the discussion of climate change? Because there, there is, it's a big challenge. We know that, but something you just said, you know, trying to do these things with joy and hope because there is hope and, you know, this is our planet. There is no plan B planet, no planet B. So 
just give me your thoughts on why there's this sort of anger in the in the discussion and rather than the hopeful discussion. There is so much anger. I, I think not, there's anger from different sides. There's anger that there's not more action, and there's anger on the other side from those of us who think there should be action. Exactly. You know, we see so much of this us versus them way of thinking uh, these days. And if there has ever been a we're all in it together issue, it's climate change. Yeah. I mean, we are all in this together. And it's why I... We've been very deliberate um, in the book Drawdown and in the way we talk about climate change. We don't talk about fighting global warming or slashing emissions or, the, you know, it's um, because that way of thinking is part of what's gotten us into the mess that we're in. And we need other ways of thinking to get out of it. And, you know, I think a lot about the the, the social movements that have really changed human society. Um, you know, it's of course in Atlanta, we think about, uh, the incredible work of, of the civil rights movement and leaders like John Lewis. And of course they knew that love had to be at the center of action. I mean, that is, I think the secret sauce for nonlinear change. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the more the more we can bring love and light into this space and less righteous indignation and more recognition that no one is perfect no one's getting it all right and we're all going to be muddling forward together hopefully increasingly together wow that's a, that's a really interesting way and i think an appropriate way to close this out i i recently saw the the band u2 in concert here in atlanta and one of the songs they finished the concert with was a song one. And yeah. so as you were talking about that, that's what came to mind because it really is one planet, one world, one love, and it's not us against them. It's everybody. So this is religions. Uh, the world's wisdom traditions have been telling us for millennia how truly interconnected we are. Yeah. And science is telling us that same truth. Um we're in it together. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think oneness sums it up very nicely, Marshall. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. We've been talking with Katherine Wilkinson. And make sure you check out Project Drawdown. Thank you again. Thanks. Thanks.